1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. As you're finding your place there, let me ask you this. How does uncertainty affect your heart? How does uncertainty affect your heart? And you may be thinking, well, oh, not that much. We have lots of uncertainties in life. And, and while that may be a hard question to ask, sometimes it's helpful if we use examples. So allow me to use a few examples of uncertainty, and you tell me how much it affects your heart. You, your loved one is in surgery, and you're uncertain how it's going to turn out. How does that affect your heart? You have bills due, and you are uncertain when you're going to get paid. How does that affect your heart? Your kids are out at night and you're uncertain what exactly they are doing or how they're behaving. How is that going to affect your heart? You had a test at the hospital and you are uncertain of the results as you wait. How does that affect your heart? Now, these are just a few of the myriad of uh, examples from this week that I've heard from you of things that are affecting your heart. So I already know the answer to all of these things. These uncertainties make us uneasy. They make us worry. They make us fretful. So now let me ask you one other situation. Today you die and you're standing before Christ, are you uncertain what he's going to say to you? Jesus himself says this concerning that day, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, on that day that they stand before him, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, when we think about eternity, it is unpopular, it is uncomfortable to talk about it as though it were an uncertainty. There was an era gone by in which the American Puritans kind of took things a little too far, and every sermon they preached was hellfire and brimstone, you better get your life right kind of uncertainty. They, 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 they went to this extreme in which every Sunday would cause those who were sitting before them or standing before them many times to question where they would spend eternity. There was a great deal of uncertainty in that time. I, my fear is, is that we've now taken and swung that pendulum all the way to the other extreme. And you, and you say, well, what do you mean? When you listen to the news and you say, and you see things like coexist. Now, that sounds nice, doesn't it? But what they really mean is everyone's going to get to heaven when we hear these, these ideas and, and these phrases that these people put out that encourage us to think everybody's basically good, and, and there's only really a few people that are going to go to hell. When, when Jesus says, narrow is the path, 
and few are those who enter my kingdom. You see, we've swung the pendulum the other direction and we've fallen into another pitfall in assuming that everyone is okay. Everyone is saved. Everyone who says the name of Jesus, who says Christ, is going to be saved. Well, I have bad news for many people that is mere profanity off their lips because they mean it means nothing. And while it is uncomfortable to talk about the uncertainty of eternity, it is only when we talk about its uncertainty that we can actually be assured that we know where we're going. God's word demands that we are sure where we're going. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 9-10 through 10 say, For whoever lacks these qualities, these Christian qualities that he says in verses 6 through 8, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins, which is what we talked about last week. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, or some translations say, make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. It is important that we recognize the uncertainty that exists about eternity, but it is also important that we, all, we understand the assurance that God's Word gives us. While uncertainty provides the biggest unrest, if today I were able to say with authority, it is not guaranteed that any of you will go into heaven and today you were to stand before Jesus, that would cause an extreme amount of uncertainty in our heart. That would cause an extreme amount of unrest, uh, uh, worry, fret. But the opposite is also true. If today, by the word of God, I could assure you that this is how you know, that you know Christ, that should provide for us the greatest of rest. The kind of rest that when surgeries are standing before us. The kind of rest that when children are out late at night. The kind of rest that looks at an empty bank account says, my God is with me. I can rest in his plan. John wants you to rest assured in a living faith. He wants you to know that you know that you know that you know that you know Christ. He wants you to rest in this certainty. And so he is giving us these signs, and I I explained this last week, these signs are not meant to be a checklist, a to-do list. They're meant to be an examination. He's given us these signs to examine our life and see whether or not we know Christ. And today we are looking at a sign of living. Today we are looking at the sign of living the truth. So with that in mind, I ask that you read along with me. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
These verses are not separated from what we looked at last week in chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. Instead, they're they are bound together. Notice he begins verse 3 with this and. In other words, he's continuing a thought. So this, this first thought is explicit in verses 1 and 2 of, of 1 John, in which he says we can know or we can have this assurance because we have an advocate with the Father. We have a helper in Christ who stands before him and pleads our case. This is not separated from that truth worth believing, believing. But now we have this second test, which is truth worth living. We have the truth that's worth believing, and I talked about what it meant to do that, that we, that we understand it, that we want it, that we love it. But that truth is never left by itself. Truth must impact the way you and I live. That is why we have the living test in verse 3. He says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Now, there's this word used twice in here. Know. Know is one of John's favorite words. The book or the epistle of 1 John is only 95 verses. Only 95 verses. Just think about that. 95 verses. And in 95 verses, John uses the word know or a form of that word 40 times. That means that out of every two verses, John is saying that they need to know something. Pretty significant, right? He wants them to know, and we've already looked at, he wants them to know particularly that they are in Christ. He wants them to know that they can rest assured that they belong to him. And here he is going to explain one of the ways they can know that. He is deeply concerned with this knowledge, but this is not a mere intellectual knowledge. This is not something we just... We, we just understand, or, or we can read about in a book. This is a knowledge that is intimate. If I were to ask you to describe your spouse, describe all the things that you love about your spouse, and, and you were to tell me, well, I love that they have brown hair and, 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 and hazel eyes and and, 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 I, and I love that they're this tall and that they... they... Now, that, that's sweet, right? But anybody could say that, right? Anybody knows that. But there's a different kind of knowledge, right? There's the kind of knowledge that I love that they love to serve other people. That's a kind of knowledge that you've been around them, that you've that you've you've interacted with them, right? There, there's a I, I I love that they they laugh at corny jokes, right? That that's not my wife. Um, uh, I I I, I th- that kind of knowledge is more than just I know what they look like, right? More than I know the facts about them, right? This is the kind of knowledge that. 
that John is talking about here. He wants us to know more than just mere facts about Jesus. He wants us to know more than just the historical aspect of him. He wants to know him in a sense of relationship. One commentator says this, Knowing him is not knowing facts about him, nor simply being able to recognize him operating in circumstances or in other people. It's knowing him personally for oneself. We see this knowledge illustrated in the book of Gospel of John by Philip. Philip said to Jesus in John chapter 14, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me? Whoever has seen the Father, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Philip a disciple of Jesus, spending three years with Jesus, seeing him cure people, raise people from the dead, seeing him perform miracles of feeding thousands, seeing him turn, uh, do all kinds of things, turn blind men to seeing men, lame men to walking men. He says, just show us the Father. And Jesus says, how much do I have to show you? Do you not know me? This knowledge that, that John wants for us, that he's, he's giving us or offering us in verse 3 of 1 John, of 1 John chapter 2, is more than mere hanging out with Jesus. It's more than mere familiarity. It's more than just knowing about his miracles. But it's knowing who he actually is. And this is what Jesus chided his own disciples for. I'm convinced there are many within the church today that are in Philip's shoes that are looking for Jesus to show them something else. And in so doing, they're proving that they don't know Jesus himself. That is why he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. We have this sure knowledge. We're sure of this if. Now, if statements can always make us antsy, so I want to be very clear. This is not an earned salvation kind of evidence. This is, a, this is proof of salvation. This is not, if you'll do this, then you will be saved. No, the only qualification for that is belief, right? First John, or John 3.16. Believing in Christ. This is what comes out of that belief. If you truly know Christ, if you truly believe in Christ, then this is what's going to come out. We keep His commandments. We know that we know Christ if we keep His commandments. Pretty simple statement, right? As a pastor, I'm looking at this thinking, how do I clarify this for them? Well, I think it's pretty clear. Anybody who's ever been around a parent, been a parent, or has a parent, which includes everyone in here, knows what it means to keep their commandments, to obey their rules, right? It's not, it's not difficult to understand that. We know that we know Christ if we keep His commandments. This should remind us of James when he says, you show me your faith apart from works, I'll show you my faith by my works, right? 
In other words, our faith, the thing that we're believing in, the thing that we're trusting in, affects the way you and I live. John is saying one of the tests that should assure our hearts is as we examine our lives, are we keeping His commandments? I love that he uses the term keep instead of obey here. He's going to use obey here in a minute, but keep has this idea of this attending to carefully. This idea of of holding on to as if it were valuable. Right? that's, that's, That's the idea of this. Let me... Okay, so we're going to all take a trip to East St. Louis this afternoon, and you're going to carry with you all of your finest jewelry, ladies, and a bag, and you're going to keep it by your side. How close are you going to keep it? Pretty close, right? First of all, you're like, you're nuts. We're not doing it. I agree. We're not going to go do that. But, but when we understand keeping it, it means that I'm going to cherish this. I'm going to keep this. I'm going to attend to this. And what is he keeping? These these commandments. God's commandments. Now, some people have a tendency, and and, and this this comes from that four-square gospel kind of mentality of interpreting this as the Ten Commandments. If we keep the Ten Commandments, it's evidence of these things. I don't know that we can narrow it to that, primarily because the context later is going to just talk about His Word in general and not just His commandments. I think it's a general, whatever He says, we are going to do. This correlates with the promises God gives us in the Old Testament. See, in Jeremiah chapter 31 He is going to give us, He's going to tell us, this is the sign of the new covenant. This is the sign that you know that the Holy Spirit has done something in your heart, that you are my people. Jeremiah chapter 31, here it is. Thousands of years before 1 John. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. The promise of the new covenant given to the prophet Jeremiah, fulfilled through Jesus and now declared through the pen of John in this epistle is God's word will be on the hearts of those who are genuinely his children. They will want his word. They will want to do and keep his word because that is what their heart wants to do. This should be a good examination for us. Because there are some that believe this and grow weary in believing this. Now, show of hands. For how many of you is it hard to keep the commandments of God? It's hard, right? It can get tiring pretty quick. This should encourage us Because we know that when we see those things in our life, we know that it is the Holy Spirit working within us. We know that God is doing something in us. That God is transforming our hearts. 
Now, I, we have to keep this in context. Verse 2, chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1 says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, he's not saying if we sin, if we don't keep his commandments, that we miss out. But generally, there is a, a, a lifestyle, a manner in which Christians walk and that they want to keep his words, and that should encourage believers. For those who are doubting, This should be a measuring stick. For those who are not genuine believers, this should reveal something in them. It is one thing to make a statement like this, but sometimes it's hard to understand. And so John, being the great pastor that he is, helps flesh it out through comparison. In verses 4 through the beginning of verse 5, we have living compared. He goes on to say, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. I'm going to read that to you one more time. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Words without without action reveal false assurance. Words without without action reveal false assurance. John says this, though he has someone in mind... I'm convinced that John, when he writes this, he has all these comparisons. He's preaching as a pastor who knows the congregation. And and, and he has someone in mind here of those who speak, who says, oh, I know God, but they do not live that way. They, they, They claim to know Him, but they don't keep His commandments. And what does John say about that person? They're a liar. The truth is not in them. Now that seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? Call someone a liar. But you have to remember that John has eternity in the balance. For John, there are a couple of options. Either he can speak out and maybe cut through the lies and cause these individuals to repent and believe, or he can speak out and, and help those around them understand this person's not really a believer. We shouldn't follow them. Because that's what's going on, is these people are being led astray by those who claim to know God, who have this secret knowledge of God. Okay, That's the context of 1 John. They're being led astray by those. But they're not willing to keep God's commandments. They are liars. This is not a popular message because of the reasons I already gave you, because many want to believe that most are safe. Now, this is what makes preaching funerals difficult. I'm just going to be honest with you. As a pastor, this is what makes preaching funerals difficult. Because as a pastor, I want to stand behind the pulpit and proclaim all of their excellencies. Proclaim what God has done in this person's life and how that should affect each and every one of us. The problem is, is that the people in the pew often know them better than I do. 
and they know that I'm lying. Now, I, 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 I'm saying these harsh words with the same intent that John is. This is why it is best to preach the gospel always and allow it to do what it will. Words and deeds that are misaligned reveal the real heart. And, and, you, and you're like, man, those are harsh words. It's really not that difficult to understand. You have a new pastor come in here, and, and he begins stealing. How many of you are going to want to follow him? What are you going to say about him? He's a liar. That's not hard, is it? it you, you, have, you have an individual that, that comes to your work, and you see them talking out of both sides of their mouth. How many of you are going to want to follow them as a leader? You're going to say, no, he's a liar. This is, this is common sense. John is preaching common sense to them because they're missing something very simple and worrying about all of these other things and these doctrines that these secret knowledge kind of people are giving them. They're missing the, the simple truth that what we believe affects the way we live. What we believe is affirmed in the way you and I live it out. The truth is not in them. But there is another alternative. Action is a product of genuine love. And this is probably harder than it seems because the English translation is trying to make it easy for us to understand. But this, this, this becomes a little difficult. It says, but whoever. So on the one hand, we have the liar, right? Who says one thing and does something else. And now on the other hand, but whoever keeps his word... In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. Now, I don't want to bore you with the, the complexities of this, the struggles with this, but there are two options here in interpreting this. And I'll be honest with you, I, I struggle with both of them a little bit, but I think because of John, I've, I've been able to narrow it down. You have the one option of love of God, meaning my love for God. My love of God. That love of God is perfected. The other option is God's love for me. Now, it's hard to see that in English, right? We don't, well, first of all, we don't think that often about what we write, much less uh, use grammar. But that's, that's one of the things that in English it's hard for us to understand here. We, which is this, the love of God for me or my love for God? And, and I don't know that we can cut the line that simple. Because God's love for me causes me to love Him, right? By this we know love that He gave His life for us, right? It's what we're going to read later on in 1 John. I only know love because He loves me. And so we have this, this person who's obeying, and what do we know about Him? The love of God is perfected. Obeying the commands of of those you love is an indication of loving them. John is likely recalling what he heard from Christ himself in John chapter 14. Je Jesus says this to, John, to his disciples, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 
And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, not the one that's going to fall by the wayside here. Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I think this was in the back of his mind. Love is equated to keeping the words of those that we love. We cherish the words of those we love. I don't get to see my, my father too much. And this week, my, my stepmother was, had surgery and um, went to the hospital and sat with my dad. And as she went off to surgery, he turned around and gave me a hug and said, Son, I love you. I will forever cherish that moment. That's, that's one of a bazillion times my father's told me he loves me. There's no, it's because I love him. I'm going to cherish those words because I love him and his love for me means something. So even though that we're not around each other all the time, we don't get to do things together all the time, in my mind, I'm cherishing these words. This is what Jesus is saying. If you keep my commandments, you love me. Now, he's saying, John is reiterating this in a different way, and he's saying, he says here, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So let's just assume for just a moment that this is our love for God. In the person that keeps God's word, we are expressing that the love of God, the love of God in our hearts is perfected. Now, anybody in here perfect? So when we read this word, it makes us all nervous, right? Because this is a test. And I can't tell you how many people I've had read through First John and say, I don't know you become a believer. Because they read this and they say, well, I'm not perfect. So let me clarify for you, in, in Christian theology, perfection is not always being without fault. Perfection in this sense is complete. It, it has carried out its end. It, it, is, it is over. It's like if you were to put on a big event and you had all your checklist and all your to-dos and you, get to, you know that if you do all these things and you get to the end, it's going to be over. And so you do all of those things and you're like, it was perfected. Woo! It's over. I'm, it's complete. It's done. We've, complete, we've gone through all of these things. That's what John is saying. So he's saying that the love of God has reached its end. It has caused all of these things to, do the, to reflect in this way because it's perfected in me. It's completed in me. So in other words, when I love God and God loves me, it brings me to a point of obedience, and that is where it should bring me. The love of God in me should bring me to a point of obeying, therefore it is complete. It's made it to its goal. It's achieved the thing that it set out to do, to transform the way that I live. So we have this love displayed in us. 
So we have these living compared. We have uh, living the truth or the test, the living test. We have living compared, but we also have living displayed. I'm one of those people that I often learn by watching. That's why I'm thankful for YouTube. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with YouTube, you won't know what I'm saying, but I love to do things. But YouTube allows me to watch somebody else do them and make mistakes, and then I can learn from that. Okay, So, so it's a great way. I enjoy it for that very purpose. I watch things. John is going to say, watch this. Let me illustrate what it means to live the truth. That's why in verse, the end of chapter 5 through 6, he says, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You need an illustration of what it means to live truth, to live the love of God, look to Christ. That, simple. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says that He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Let me see if I can't break this down. First of all, he says, By this we may know that we are in Him. So we have this this idea of in Him. This is one of the first times that that John is going to use this in this epistle. He'll use it again and again. Whoever says He abides in Him. So we have this in Him and this abiding in Him, and and we don't talk like that today, so sometimes it's lost, right? Jesus illustrates what this is. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, anybody that has ever been around a plant knows something. If you break off a branch, it dies. Right? Pretty simple. The branch can only survive if it is attached to the vine, attached to the plant, right? That, that, that's how it, it feeds its nourishment. That's where it gets its, its water and soil, right? This, this is where it, it is nourished. Now, we also know that you can plant a branch and it, it's going to grow, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the branch as it relates to the vine as a whole. And he's saying that when the branch that is us, abides in Him, then we are, we are nourished and we produce fruit. This is what it means to be in Him. That we find our sustenance. We find everything that we need for life in God. Not in ourselves, not pull it by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, not, not by anything else. We find who we are in Him. And this is what we are saying when we are baptized, right? We are saying we are buried with Christ in baptism, risen to a new life. Right? There, there's this, I am found in Him. It is no longer I that live, but that He that lives in me. 
These are all the texts from Scripture that, that talk about what it means to be in Him. So John is saying, by this we know that we are in Him. By this we know that we are being nourished by Him, that we are spiritually alive, that we have fruit and can produce fruit. How? By walking in the same manner, same way in which He walked. Walk is used throughout Scripture, and it's a very important phrase, and I don't have time to unpack all of it, so let me just say this. When we read walk in Scripture, it's talking about the whole of life. The manner in which we carry out all of life. At home, at work, at school, at the store, everywhere we go, we walk. And so when we say, when John says, whoever says he abides in him, that he's in him, that person ought to walk. They ought to carry out their whole life in the same manner in which Jesus walked. How did Christ walk? Well, Christ commands us in John chapter 13, 15. He says, For I have given, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Jesus himself admits that you should be walking like me. You know where he says that? After washing the dirty disciples' feet. Follow me. Do what I have done. Jesus claimed this is how he walked. He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus walk was one of obedience to His Father in heaven. Jesus teaches them to pray this, right? Kevin prayed this earlier. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus teaches the disciples to pray that God's will be done. That's how he's going to walk. He's going to pray the same thing that he says he's going to do. He's come to do the will of the Father. He teaches the disciples to pray that God's will would be done in their life. And then Jesus illustrates that in his own prayer. As Jesus prays before his crucifixion, With drops of blood sweating from his head, he says, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So when John says, This is the measure by which you can examine your life. Are you willing to live out the truth? Then he moves on and he says, This is what it is. It's not talk. It's a walk that is illustrating this truth. Let me show you this, he says. Look at Jesus' life. And we look at Jesus' life and we understand immediately that Jesus' goal was obedience to the Father, even obedience to the point of death. Now let me ask you this. Which of you has obeyed the Father to the point of death? Well, you're all still alive, right? We're all still in here, so we've not completed it. 
That means that John's sign is never over. That means that we can never get enough Sunday school badges, that we can never get enough attendance uh, charts filled out for church, that we can never give enough, that we we have reached our maximum capacity for obeying God. I'm good. That box is done. Rather, what John is giving us is a test that follows us throughout life, and as we examine how we're living, it reveals something in us. So you, examine your life. How are you living? I'm not asking, are you living perfectly? But are you living as one who has God's law written on his heart, who wants to do what God calls us to do? Are you living as one who wants to obey God's word and who is seeking to carry that out, not only in word, but in deed? Does your living cause you to question your eternity? If it doesn't, then you have a glorious assurance of eternal life. If it does cause you to question your eternity, seek God in prayer. Plead with Him to make your calling and election sure, as 1 Peter, or 2 Peter chapter 1 says. For some, this will clarify that you are not believers in Christ. And if that is you, allow me to introduce you to a rest that is beyond all that you can imagine. A rest that assures you that no matter what comes your way in this life, you are still a child of God. With that in mind, let's go to our great God in prayer. Dearly Father, we plead with you that you would transform our hearts. Change us. Cause us to use not to examine